A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. So trauten Schabes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geberer with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, but this is not just another episode. We are now ready to launch a new series. So we had a lot of success with the previous series, The Rabbis and the Zionists, and therefore, Jewish History Soundbites, I decided it's appropriate to um, engage um, everyone with a new series be uh, along a similar format as the old one every other week another installment and it'll be longer than the regular uh than the regular um episodes that we have and it's going to be ongoing so before i introduce the topic and what it's going to be about i just wanted to, to, to take the opportunity at a momentous occasion i guess of uh, launching a new series um, it's you know it's a special thing for Jewish history soundbites. I want to again thank um, the people involved, both the producers. Uh, I can't do everything that's going on with Jewish history soundbites alone. I try to do some research. I try to talk a little bit, but there's a lot that goes on. A lot of the production and the tech stuff and the graphics and the there's a lot, a lot of the organizing that goes on, and there's a, a couple of dedicated people to the cause who they're so dedicated that they wish to remain anonymous. They absolutely refuse and don't allow me to, to say their names. So, but they help out, and it could not happen without them. So, I want to thank them um, personally for everything that they do. And I want to thank the listeners, you listeners, um, all of you. We're, we're creating a real, a real community here um, of Jewish History Soundbites listeners. I've become enriched by the feedback and additions and sources that I receive and corrections occasionally um, from the various types of listeners from all over the place knowledgeable, the quality that they have, and it's all to you. I would never be able to do anything without uh, a great group of listeners, so thank you all, and I and I hope uh, that you're enjoying both Jewish History Summits in general, and I hope that this series also is enjoyable. So, this series is going to be about 
Um, the subject, the title is World War I and the Jews and the Jewish people. World War I is a famous world event and the Jewish people played a role in, or were played a role with in many and various different ways. And that's what I want to examine, the different angles of that story as far as the Jewish people are concerned in the context of World War I. So I want to introduce... I want to connect the thank you I just did, um, thanking the listeners of Jewish History Soundbites to the launching of the new series. And the connection that I would like to use is a letter I received. and uh, um, I will read you this letter. And it really, I think this letter, more than any other letter I've ever received, is a powerful reminder of the revolution that's going on that I'm not even aware of, to the extent of which I'm not aware of, of, of what Jewish history soundbites is. And uh, here's the letter. I quote, Hi Yehuda, I am a Jewish U.S. Marine stationed overseas. Being away from home in a proper Jewish community, I've really appreciated having your podcasts to educate and enlighten me. I've always been interested in Jewish history, and since discovering your podcast a few weeks ago, I've binged almost 50 episodes and don't plan on stopping anytime soon. If you ever get a chance, I'd love to hear more about the Jewish Enlightenment, as well as some of the early great Jewish philanthropists in America like Jacob Schiff and Louis Marshall. Best regards, and he writes off his, his initials here. That's the end of the letter. Now, when I got this letter, you know, I get a lot. I get a lot of uh, a lot of feedback from all types and all different parts of the world. But this, this, um, I was humbled. Um, it was a very powerful reminder of the extent of what's becoming and how we're reaching different people. And I think that when I started this, it was a bit of a selfish uh, enterprise. You know, I wanted to you know, talk about my trips and get 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 the get the drum up some interest in Jewish history and trips and tours and Europe trips and all kinds of stuff like that. But really, what's going on here is something way uh, greater and much larger than that. And since it's a U.S. Marine, a Jewish U.S. Marine, that brings us right into the topic of the Jews in World War One. Even though the Jews in World War One is not just the combat Jews, it's the story of Jewish people, but it's Jews and war and armies, so it, uh, it, it brings us into the topic. So let's talk, uh, let's get right to the point already. And um, what's this series really about? Um, so, so what, 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 why, is, why is World War I and the Jews relevant for Jewish history altogether? Um, the story of the Jewish people was fundamentally altered as a result of World War I, and the after effects of which are really felt until this very, very day. But, the, but it's overlooked, and the whole story of the Jews in World War I and the effect on the Jewish life and the Jewish people, Jewish communal life, communities worldwide as a result of World War I, has been overlooked and really overshadowed. And the reason for that is, is because only 20 years after World War I, the decimation of the Holocaust completely or almost completely wiped out that entire world. And that very much overshadowed 
what what had taken place earlier during World War One, and even though there's many remnants of the effects of World War One that still exist and are with us still today, and it's important to understand it in that context, but still. The Holocaust and World War II was so overpowering and so overwhelming that at the end of the day, um, the story of World War I and the Jewish people has been uh, relegated to uh, a footnote at best in, in Jewish history. So, but really, um, there's, there's a lot to talk about. And uh, in this series, there's going to be, uh, you know, several parts just to give you an idea of the diversity of what the subjects that can be examined. I hope we get to all of them if we have time. If not, then, then we won't. Um, but it's the, it's the story on the battlefield, what's going on in the war, how did the war begin, um, what was the world like, what was the Jewish world like, and in what political world did the Jewish world exist at that time. We never live in a vacuum. We have a part of a larger society. Um, there are Jews who serve in the armies of World War I. The Jews in Eastern Europe go into exile as a result of the war, the homes of the Pale of Settlement. The Jews living in the Russian Empire, in Galicia and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, become battlefields. And they have to, many of them, most of them even, have to go into exile. How does that work out? What's the, that's, a, that's a huge story. World War I reaches Eretz Yisrael, and there's a political change in Eretz Yisrael as a result of World War I. The British come in, the Ottoman Empire is out. World War I reaches the United States, and the Jewish community in the United States is mobilized both by joining the war effort and by joining the rescue effort in a great philanthropic drive to support their brethren on the other side of the ocean. The Jews in Russia go through a massive transformation towards the end of the war with the Russian Revolution. It's the end of the Pale of Settlement. They finally receive equal rights. It's followed by the Civil War, a series of pogroms. Poland, the center of Jewish life, becomes independent. The Jews living in Poland had been under the Russian or Austro-Hungarian, some of them under the German Empire, for well over a hundred years. And now all of a sudden, after World War I, or as a result, of the peace treaty following the war, the Treaty of Versailles, Poland becomes independent. There's massive emigration from Eastern Europe, where they immigrate to, I just learned the, getting used to that distinction between emigrate and immigrate, I just learn it. But uh, enough people are reminding me and, and pestering me about it, so I'm trying to be more uh, more exact about that. Um and uh, and uh, and they're going to countries all over the world. The third Aliyah is uh, is an influx of Jews to Eretz Israel. Communism falls over, falls down as a result of the Russian Revolution in parts of Eastern Europe in the Soviet Union. So there's a massive change, and all those are topics, and really all those topics uh, need to be covered quite extensively. We're going to try to touch on uh, the various different topics and angles and stories that I mentioned just now over the next few parts of the series, but I want to already start what I want to talk about in the first uh, in this first part today, but that was just a bit of an overview. overview. So what we're looking at is, is um, first the world, and then we'll go into the Jewish world, 
the world that, uh, that the belligerents of World War I um, live in prior to the war is the age of empires, the age of imperialism. There are several great empires of, of, based in Europe, but really they have a global influence because, because of imperialism. So they have colonies worldwide, mainly in Africa and Asia, but also in the Americas and in the oceans of the world. There's the Ottoman Empire, which is an Islamic empire, mainly in the Middle East, in Asia Minor, North Africa. There's the German Empire, who has colonies all over the world, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which dominates Central Europe, the Russian Tsarist Empire, which is a massive monster over Europe and Asia, um, the British Empire, which is at its peak, like the saying goes, the sun doesn't set on the British Empire, until, of course, it did, but that's at a later part of the century. And the French and Dutch have Belgium, I wouldn't call them empires, but they have colonies, they're, especially France, they're a powerful um, force to be reckoned with, and, um, and it's the age of empires, it's the, the, um, the age of alliances, there's, there's simmering uh, under the surface of European politics, because of economic reasons, because of the imperialism, because of natural resources, because of the building up of navies. There's a million causes, and there's been books written about it, and great research, and uh, all different angles. There's one that comes to mind. It's not even the best book on the topic. It's just uh, one that just came to my mind now. The Barbara Tuckman's uh, book, The Guns of August. But... Um, but which is which is okay. It's a good, it's a good book. There are there are the ones that are better um, to explain the context and the causes of um, of what brought to World War One. The the first and second Balkan Wars um, definitely contributed to that in the early years of the um, of the um, of the, sorry, that might have been in post World War One. Excuse me, I'm mixing things up. But the the Balkans were always a hotbed of of excitement, and the southern parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, bordering on the Ottoman Empire, and um, and a million other factors, which is not really our topic to go into now, um, especially since the later part of the nineteenth century, when Otto von Bismarck. Uh, unified Germany under the rule of Prussia, essentially. The dominant force was Prussia. And Germany became a major force in European politics. Um, uh, Albert Va Alfred von Tirpitz is the founder of the modern German Navy. And Bismarck and von Tirpitz's plan is to rival the British Navy, which is the most powerful navy on the high seas. And that becomes an arms race, essentially. Today we think of an arms race as a nuclear arms race. In those days, an arms race was who can build a bigger and better navy. So, you know, there's the Franco-Prussian War in the 1870s, and that, that, that causes the tensions, the everlasting tensions between uh, France and Germany to escalate. And, and there's just a lot going on. So if we take a look at the Jewish world at the time, uh, again, 1914 
is when World War I begins in August. So let's freeze that moment. What does the Jewish world look like in 1914? So the majority of the Jewish people lives in Eastern Europe, mainly in the Russian Empire. We're talking about millions and millions of Jews, about 5 million Jews, um, give or take, um, live in the Russian Empire. Um, the Russian Empire, they live in poverty under a repressive regime who's anti-Semitic. The Romanovs, the Tsars, were very anti-Semitic, and the story of the Jews in the Russian Empire is uh, literally an endless story. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even have a series on it because it would be a series that would never end. Um, but the, the, um, they're, 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 the numbers are there. They're living in the Pale of Settlement, which is where most, for the most part, the Pillow Settlement did have its um, did have some uh, leniencies to it at this point. That there were Jews who were allowed to live outside the Pale, but for the most part, most of the Jews still lived inside the Pale, which was a restricted area, and that's why the the uh, Jewish population was very very high, especially in the Pale itself. A lot of Jews live in the Austro-Hungarian Empire mainly in the area that Jews called Galicia, southern Poland, western Ukraine today. There are Jews who live in Hungary, which is also part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. There are Jews living in Germany, much smaller numbers, but there's still um, well over half a million Jews living in Germany. And in other parts of Western Europe, in France, there's a movement towards urbanization across Europe, both Jews and non-Jews, but it's hitting the Jews um, very strongly. Jews are leaving the shtetl, and there's an urbanization. And of course, that brings us to the next point, that of the massive immigration of Jews to all parts of the world is at its peak. Um, the immigration to the United States is at, at this point, about a, at a trend of about a, about approximately 100,000 Jews a year are immigrating to the United States. It's a massive amount. Uh, that means in the 10 years and the decade before World War I, it's about a million Jews who immigrated just to the United States. Of course, there's a few hundred thousand that immigrate to all countries of the world worldwide, um, including Western Europe. So there's this huge population shift, which I um, discussed in a different episode many months ago. And that's happening at this point, which is frozen because of the war, because of World War I. It stops, uh, it stops all movement of, uh, of anywhere. So, so that's, that's also going on. In the rest of the world, there's the immigrant communities in the United States, where Jews are trying to find themselves and build themselves and, and figure out what their Jewish identity means in the New World, in America, in South America, South Africa, Australia, any places where they come to. There's the Sephardic world of North Africa, um, the Middle East, mainly living under the Ottoman Empire for hundreds of years. By now, it's a somewhat tottering and corrupt empire, economically not doing great, not modernized, has its issues of its own. They're living in relative um, safety, although they have certain discrimination uh, with the Dimi status that they, that they have. Um, modernization is coming slowly, but a little bit quicker to the Jewish people through the Alliance, 
through French culture in North Africa. It's less the Roman, the excuse me, the Ottoman Empire, and more uh, influence from French colonialism, French imperialism, as well as Italy, and the Jews um, fit right into that. So you have the picture of Jewish, the Jewish world, and basically Jews worldwide, almost without exception, are going to be affected by the upcoming war. Some more than others. The Jews in Eastern Europe, where their homes become literally a battlefield, are affected in a very direct and strong way. Jews in every one of the armies, both the Central Powers and the Allied Powers, who are serving in the army, are affected in a very direct way. Some is more indirect, um, but, but it's really worldwide. Like I said, the Jews in Eretz Yisrael feel it right there, the Jews in America... Um, you're talking about a worldwide conflict um, that, that reached everywhere. Japan joins the Allied powers pretty early on in the war and attacks German uh, possessions in the Far East. It, it's, it's a war that reaches everywhere. By the way, it's called, in, in, in Europe and in England, it's called the First World War. In America, it's called World War I. That's not what it always was called. In, in, in the years... In the years of the war itself and up to World War II, it was called in the West, in, in, in the Western world, the English-speaking world for sure, it was called the Great War. Um, and it was sometimes called the War to End All Wars because that's what it was believed to be. And it was a war that was so out of proportion from any previous war that uh, it was seen as the War to End All Wars, of course, World War II came along and dwarfed it in every respect. Um, but the ones who called it the World War were actually the Germans. They called it a Weltkrieg, a World War. And when, it, when World War II arrived, and everyone described that as a truly World War, so then retroactively they started to call the First World War, they, no, they stopped calling it the Great War, they stopped calling it the war, the war to end the wars, and they retroactively renamed it uh, the First World War or World War I. But interestingly enough, it's not the first global conflict. There were many global conflicts uh, throughout world history, and uh, there's many, many examples. Just one, the, the Seven Years' War, which was between mainly France and England, but a lot of other countries were involved also, reached everywhere, reached the New World. It was fought... In, in, in the colonies, or the British colonies of America, which eventually became the United States. We're talking about in the 1750s, George Washington was actually hired by the British to be a, a, a officer in the British Army to fight the French there. And that was where he got his military experience. That was a global conflict that was fought in, on many continents, in many countries, between major world powers. And that's just one example. There's quite a few other examples like that. So... If we would, some people actually call the Seven Years' War World War Zero because it was the first world. You, know, you can't call it World War One. It's the uh, World War One was was the one we're about to describe. So, um, so the it's not the first global conflict, but for but because of the size and the amount of people killed and the amount of armies involved and the amount of people mobilized and the effect that it had on the world, it's called the Major World War One. Now, when we talk about the effects uh, that it has, the, there's really two aspects of it, 
And especially in regards to Jewish life, I want to divide it into two parts, and I'm going to jump from one to the other throughout the series. But it's important to understand that there's really two, two um, different uh, effects that it can have on Jewish life. Number one is the war itself and its immediate effect on Jewish life. There is what the war does. There's, there's the battlefields. There's the, the disruption of Jewish communal life, of the exiles that are caused, of the education that's disrupted, the effect that it has on family life, and the, the immediate, the, the economic costs, the, 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 the poverty that it causes, and the Jews are drafted into armies. There are Jews who are killed on the battlefield. These are immediate effects, and that has to be examined. That's a major component of the story. However, there's the second part of the story, which is the long-term effects that it has in Jewish life as a result of the war, as a result of the Russian Revolution, as a result of the recovery from the war. And that is the, the reverberations and the long-term uh, damage or not damage, the long-term effects that it has. It could be positive, it could be negative, it could be neutral, but something happened. And those long-term effects need to be gauged, measured, and discussed, and the story is going to be told as well. So the war, whatever the causes war, were and the context was, which touched on a couple of them, but definitely did not exhaust the subject, but it begins with what becomes known as the shot heard round the world, a, a, uh, a term that is used in other contexts. So here we're talking about World War I. You know, I remember um, I was in this going back, I hope I don't sound old now when I say that it was probably close to 20 years ago, 18 years ago, I don't remember exactly. I was uh, visiting Boston, and we went out and took a tour outside of Boston. We took a tour of Lexington and Concord. It was a historical tour of the American Revolution. And, and there the tour guide told us that there's a dispute between the two towns, between Lexington and Concord, where the shot heard around the world was. Because the first shot of the American Revolution took place in one of I don't remember which one it was which, so... <laughs> I'm not sure if it was Lexington and Concord. The first shot of the American Revolution was shot in one of them. So that town claims that they're the shot heard around the world. But in the other town, even though it wasn't the first shot, but when the fighting began there in that second town, either Lexington or Concord, it was an American officer ordering his American troops to fire on the King, King George's redcoats. And that was the shot heard around the world because even though it came after the battle of the other town, but since it was an act of rebellion, it was an act of revolt against the British crown, that people were willing to die and to fight for their liberty, for their independence, for the values that they believed in. So therefore, that's really the shot heard around the world because that's the call for liberty and revolution. So it was a big machloikis, the tour guide was telling us. I don't think she used the word machloikis. Uh, between Lexington and Concord, where's the real shot heard around the world? Of course, baseball fans are going to tell you that the shot heard around the world is Bobby Thompson's home run in 1951 when he hits a home run in the playoff between the New York Giants and the Brooklyn Dodgers. So everyone has their shot heard around the world. I'm talking about 
in a global sense, and we go back to my comfort zone, uh, away from uh, baseball or the American Revolution, but in Europe and in, in related to Jewish history, we're talking about the shot heard around the world that begins World War I. Gavrilo Princip, I hope I'm pronouncing his, word, his name right, is a Bosnian Serb nationalist um, who... You know, Serbia has its issues. Like I said, the Balkans was a hotbed of, of revolution and of nationalism and all the different countries in the Balkans, by the way. To a certain extent, it still is. And, and, and it's, it's a problem in the Balkans. And they keep on subdividing it into more smaller countries as if each ethnic identity uh, forms a, a national identity. So it was already an issue at the beginning of the century. And the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which rules the Balkans for the most part, a little bit of Italy also. Uh, Italy has some possessions there as well, but it's mainly the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And they have issues, the long, long-standing issues with the Serbs. So he is part of a gang that, that is, that is uh, anti the rule of uh, Austro-Hungary. And without getting into all the Serbian politics at the time, because it's not really our subject, when the Archduke, the heir of the Austro-Hungarian throne, Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie are parading through Sarajevo in Serbia, um, um, this Princip fellow assassinates them. He shoots. Uh, it's a whole story how he got the shoot. Them. Again, it's not really relevant to our discussion. And he, he, um, he kills the... The um, is the Archduke Ferdinand and his wife on June twenty eighth, nineteen fourteen, and this leads to what's known as the July Crisis, and actually, you know, they demand that Serbia hand over uh, this guy. He's arrested, and they have a whole trial. And basically, the goal of the trial is that Austria Hungary wants to make make it clear that this guy is not acting alone. He's not just an angry guy, part of a small little gang, but he's acting on behalf of the autonomous Serbian government who's trying to to uh, basically declare war on the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And that's going to give an excuse for Austro-Hungary to declare war on Serbia and crush any any uh, anything, any vestige of the nationalism that exists there and and reiterate their their control over the Balkans. That's that's the goal. So so the this this leads to a whole a whole crisis. There's actually an interesting theory that that as it happens, this Ferdinand the Archduke, the heir of the Austro-Hungarian crown, he had married his his this wife who had also been killed, Sophie. She was from a lower class than than he was. She wasn't a duke. Um, she was from a lower class. Of course, she was from the aristocracy. No one uh, would dream of marrying out of the aristocracy. But at the end of the day, she wasn't a prince, princess. She wasn't a duke. She was from a lower class. So they, her her funeral. You could actually see pictures of it by the funeral. Her her uh, her um, casket was lower than her husband's to, to signify. The lower class. Now, a lot of people, the prince, a lot of the royalty and the aristocracy in Europe was very angry at this archduke for having married someone from a lower class. And as a protest, as a machoe, 
they did not attend the funeral. Now the theory goes, and this is speculative history, so it's basically meaningless, that if Archduke Ferdinand had married someone from his same class as his, same social class, then World War I would have been avoided because then all the princes and dukes and kings of Europe would have come to the funeral and they would have resolved the July crisis amongst themselves during that weekend by the funeral. Instead, they were working through intermediaries, through telegrams, through letters, through emissaries, because they did not meet in person and there's always misunderstandings and miscommunications. Um, and that's why World War I happened. That, that, that's how the theory goes. Okay, it's, it's probably not true because World War I was almost inevitable at that point. The alliances and the tension, it was, Europe was basically like a boiling pot at that point. But what, 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 what does come out from this interesting speculative theory is two important points that gives us more context to understanding the world of World War I or pre-World War I, and what was destroyed during World War I. Number one, the first point that needs to be emphasized is the rigid class system of the old world. Very rigid class system. And that whole class system, where there's the aristocracy, and even within the aristocracy, there's different social classes, and then the people who are out of the aristocracy, they are not the rulers, they're not the officers in the army, they're not important, they don't own the land, they're not, they, don't, they can't really advance that much in society, and that whole system that was what ruled Europe for you know a thousand years, maybe more, and what Americans thought was so strange and so foreign to the American system, that went away with World War I. One of the ways that many books describe World War I is in the, the implosion of the, of the old order. The old order, the old European system, including four major empires, disappeared. The Ottoman Empire, the German Empire, the um, Russian Empire, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But the whole system of the, of the classes basically disappeared following World War I. Republics arose. It was a, a completely different map of Europe. It was a completely different uh, social context of Europe following World War I. The second point is, is less important but interesting is that all these dukes and princes and kings of Europe at the time before World War I were all cousins. You have to remember that Kaiser Wilhelm II, who was the main, in a certain way, uh, one who instigated and, 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 and led World War I to the violence and terror that it was, and was essentially blamed for it, he was Queen Victoria of England's oldest grandchild. He was the oldest grandchild. He was the only one there when she died. But Jews would call that by her Yitzias Neshama. He was very close with her. King George of England during World War I was Kaiser Wilhelm's first cousin. They were fighting each other. And the Russian Tsar was a cousin. And in Bulgaria and Denmark and everywhere else in Italy, they're all cousins. Now, King George calls his first cousin at the end of World War I the greatest criminal on earth. So it's not exactly that they got along, but we as Jews know how family politics work, and it could get pretty violent. Well, not as violent as World War I, I hope. So it's, it's interesting that they were all uh, cousins. In fact, Queen Victoria was called the grandmother of Europe when she died. In any event, the war begins. The July crisis is not resolved, and by the end of um, July, 
the, the armies of Europe have been mobilized, the alliances come into play, uh, England, France, and Russia on one side, um, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and eventually the Ottoman Empire later that year. On the other side, Italy eventually joins the side of the Allies, and lots of other countries jump in over the years of the war until the end, end, end of the war. The United States also joins on the side of the Allies, but that's a different story that comes much later. So on the beginning of August, August 1st, 2nd, 3rd, one of the first days of August is the official start of World War I, and, and we go into the battlefields. So there's many different fronts. There's a lot of fighting in Africa. There's fighting in the Far East. There's fighting in the oceans. There's fighting in the Middle East. There's a front everywhere. There's a lot of fighting in the Balkans. Um, the two main fronts that are remembered and are, are famous, also a little bit more relevant at this point to the Jewish story, even though the Middle Eastern Front is very relevant to the Jewish story, we'll get to that at a later stage in this series, is the Western Front and the Eastern Front. So we'll address the Western Front first, because it's, again, of lesser importance in this context. Um, the Western Offensive is, is the, the German army um, violates the neutrality of, of Belgium, Luxembourg, and they go and they invade France. Um, Germany itself is not invaded throughout the war. It's also an important point to remember as they lead up to World War II, uh, when eventually the end of the war comes and the armistice is, is signed at Compiègne, in, on November 9th, 1918. So the, the, um, the, the arm, German army is still in France. Right? They, they invade France at the beginning of the war and they remain in France the entire war. And that eventually leads to the stab-in-the-back theory that the, uh, that the German army says that they were really great and they were betrayed back at home by someone at home. Who's that someone at home? Fill in the blank. Some people filled in the blank as the communists. Some people filled in the blank as the democracy of Weimar, which uh, arose after the abdication of the Tsar at the end of the war. And then, of course, Hitler and others were to claim that it was the Jews. But we're jumping ahead of the story. The Western Offensive, um, the plan of the German High Command, which is mainly two people. And they're also very important characters in the battlefield of World War I, and they essentially come to run the entire Germany because they make it a war economy in Germany. And incredibly, they still play a role in, uh, in Hitler coming to power 20 years later. So these people are uh, important people to remember. There's the, uh, the chief of the general staff of the German high command. He's an old Prussian officer named Paul von Hindenburg. And uh, he's, he runs the entire German army. And his assistant, who becomes a brilliant strategist, one of the smartest minds, military minds of World War I, a vicious and uh, tough military Prussian, but he, 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 he's the strategist. And his name is Erich Ludendorff. So we'll get back to them also. So they run the Western Offensive, they also run the Eastern Offensive, and... And the, at the Battle of the Marne, the French army stalls the German advance, 
And what happens is essentially a stalemate. There's a lot of strong battles fought at this, uh, over the next two years, the Battle of Assam and others, um, but there's a stalemate. And it goes into a long, uh, drawn-out trench warfare, uh, very uh, depleting of the armies and with no major territory gained, nothing really to speak of on the battlefield in the navy. It's another story in other fronts. It's another story, but on the western front in France, it stalemated almost probably for over two years until the Germans take the upper hand in 1917, and they're only stopped when the Americans join the war and they're thrown back to the Hindenburg line. So that's that's it's kind of stalemated there, and by mid 1915, and at the at the Marne, and it goes across uh, basically the whole France. Um, they can't advance. They can't come onto Paris. And in the Franco-Prussian War of 1871, they reached Paris after six weeks. In World War II, they reached Paris after six weeks. World War I, they never reached Paris. They're stuck in the trench warfare for two and a half years. So if we move to the Eastern Front, we come to just to understand. This is all to understand how it reaches the Jews. This is all you know, to get the context and to speak about how what's going on in the war so that in the next few episodes we speak about how this affected the Jews and on the Eastern Front when we describe the battles you can understand already how this directly affects the life of the Jews. Tsar Nikolai uh, II, who's the Tsar, the Romanov, who's in charge of Russia, he's the last Tsar, he eventually abdicates and the two revolutions in 1970, the February Revolution and then eventually the October Revolution, um, uh, which is the Bolshevik Revolution that comes later. So the, but the Tsar is, is, is an ally of France and, and uh, England, and he declares war on Germany, thinking that he can move through Galicia to strike at the Austro-Hungarian Empire and move to East Prussia from Lithuania, which is, of course, under the Tsars. And when I'm on my trips, and this is where we, this is where it reaches my trips. I, and I mean, World War One comes up on every single trip. Um, every every place we go, we talk about how the effects of Jewish life during the interwar period. What was the changes in Jewish life? When we talk about urbanization, when we go to the big cities, when we talk about the changes in the shtetls, when we go to the small towns, and World War One is everywhere you go. And it's. Uh, I, it's self-evident that World War II and the Holocaust is everywhere we go because the desolation and the destruction and the, and the Holocaust is everywhere you turn. You don't, need, you don't even need a tour guide for that, essentially, um, to see it, you know, to understand it. Maybe you do. But um, to understand how this, the process of the Jewish people, we're really encountering World War I everywhere we go, and it comes up uh, throughout the changes of Jewish life in Eastern Europe on every stage of the Turin. One of the many, many places that it comes up is in Kovna. When we talk about Kovna, we're always talking about the forts, because the Nazis killed the Jews at different forts. The seventh fort, the ninth fort, and everyone always asks me, what are these forts? They're czarist forts. Kovna stood at a strategic place, not far from the German border at the time, um, at, the, at a pincer point between two rivers, and they built a series of forts to defend from a German onslaught. The Tsar's military plans did not work out. At the Battle of Tannenberg, he was soundly defeated. The Germans advance, 
and they advanced through Lithuania at a very rapid pace um, towards Belarus and Russia proper, and um, Lithuania, uh, parts of Lithuania, Lithuanian Jewry and 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 Lithuanians don't even have a chance to go into exile. Before they know it, they're under German occupation, and here we already come to the first way this affects the Jewish people in the long term, because it's a quite benign occupation in Kovna and Tells and Salant and all these places of Western Lithuania and Central Lithuania. The German occupation forces are pretty civil towards the Jews. They help them with social uh, efforts. They even are involved in educational enterprises and in running the towns and communities that they have a military government in. And the memories 20 years later of a German occupation are not that bad. Germans weren't that bad in World War I. The occupation wasn't that bad. And that's a memory that's retained. And that has obviously disastrous effects because very often they don't see the need to run uh, as urgently right away when it comes the second time because the Germans who came around the second time in World War II were obviously not as friendly. Um, in Austria-Hungary, the Austro-Hungarian army throws back the Russian offensive. There's the siege, one of the, the longest siege of World War I, almost throughout the entire 1915, the siege of Przemysl. Now Przemysl is the Polish name of the town. In Yiddish, the town is called Przemyslan. Now that's a major Hasidic town. Now the siege of Przemysl is a major battle of World War I. You're talking about it's in the heart of Hasidic Galicia. And then how do they beat the Russian army in Galicia? There's the Garlitz-Tarnov Offensive. Garlitz, or Baruch of Garlitz, was the son of the Divrei Chaim. I bring groups there to Garlitz. We go daven by his oil, by his kever. One of the famous Rebbes then, talking about a very Jewish Hasidish area, Tarnov, Tarnov, we could talk about Tarnov. Tarnov is a famous Jewish city, big Jewish city. We're there on almost every trip we do to Poland. It's in the center of Galicia. Very well preserved. There's an old shul that was destroyed. There's a lot in Tarnov. And you talk about that was a major World War I battle site. So now the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Russian army is duking it out in the middle of the center of Jewish life in Galicia. And what we're going to speak about in the next episode is the exile that begins. And what's interesting is, is that we're going to speak about and we're obviously going to uh, um, open up this topic much more in the next episode, is that the exile is in two different directions. The Jews of Galicia, for the most part, go west towards Vienna, and the Jews in the Russian Empire, for the most part, go east towards the Russian interiors. It's two different directions of exile, and it's because the battlefields on the Eastern Front, both in the Austro-Hungarian army and the German army, both of them fighting against the Russians, um, the effects are felt right there in the, in the towns and shtetls and cities that the Jews lived in. Now, Tsar Nikolai, because of what's going on in the battlefield, he assumes direct command of the troops. He leaves St. Petersburg, leaves the palace, he gets on his horse, and he takes command of the troops in the battlefield. It's supposed to be a very brave move, but on the other hand, he neglects the affairs of the Russian state, of the Russian Empire. The day-to-day affairs is left in the hands of the government, other nobles and aristocrats and princes in St. Petersburg. It's also left in the incompetent hands of his wife, the Tsarina, and the Tsarist family. There's also a 
very strange character named Rasputin, who was a some, some sort of religious mystic who had a very, very uh, strong and disproportionate influence on the Tsarina, who was a fascinating figure, um, until he was assassinated by other nobles there in, in St. Petersburg. And this unrest back at home, because the Tsar is away on the battlefield, and it's not many victories on the battlefield for the Tsar, less and less as the war progresses, and the economy goes bad, the internal affairs of the Russian state are not taken care of properly, and that causes unrest at home, which leads, one of the causes, there's of course many factors involved, lead to the Russian Revolution, which is a huge upheaval not only in Russia, but to the Jewish community in Russia as well. So the stage is set already at the beginning of the war, both from the battlefield and from the effect on the government, for a lot of changes in Jewish life in Russia, which of course is going to lead us directly to the Jewish story in the next episode of this, uh, of this series uh, in, in two weeks' time from now. So this was um, Jewish History Soundbites. Uh, Yehuda Geber here um, with the, our, new, our new series. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, and trips throughout Jewish history of Europe and other places. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites now on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.